This church wants to serve God. I have discerned that this church is made of a lot of people who really want to give of themselves to the work of God and to his service. And the heart of your pastor is for you to be released in power to do that, both individually and corporately, that the power of God would be present in your lives for that service. And I'd like to see that too. I look at Ironworks Church as poised for power. You've, you're already, you've got your building, praise the Lord. You've got your ministries, you've got your staff. And you're ready. You have these things in place for, for which you're ready to serve. And Pastor Darren asked me, to go through this next passage on our journey through Exodus. And I thought it was intriguing because Moses is in a similar place to you. He's ready. This passage that we're about to read is the last passage before Moses arrives in Egypt to begin the monumental work of delivering the people of God from bondage. This enormous ministry, and he needs the power of God. And this is the last passage before he arrives in Egypt and it, and it all starts and it's going to get very intense. So it's important to note what God thinks is important at this moment in the story. And Moses is ready. Unlike before, you remember when, he, when God first showed up and spoke to him out of a burning bush and he was hemming and hawing Right, And he was saying, I don't think so. You know, I don't know if I'm really the right for this. And send somebody else. And I can't talk good. Right, and God even got mad at him because he wasn't ready. But not now. Now he's ready. Now he's committed. He's all in. You can tell because as the passage begins, he, he loads up his, his whole family on this donkey. And they are off to Egypt. They are ready to serve God. He is ready for the work. And even certain things, as you'll read, as we read, you'll notice in the passage, such as he takes with him not the staff of Moses, but the rod of God. You know, it used to be the staff of Moses, what he used when he was, you know, shepherding these sheep for all these years out there. But it's no longer the staff of Moses. Now, in this passage, it's the rod of God. All right. Shazam! Right? He's got the power. He's got the magical instrument. He is ready to go in the power of God to Egypt. <clears throat> and also, the mission is restated uh, in this passage. You know, you'll notice that twice God tells him, like, here's what you're going to do. And you can tell there from, from that, that that this is not Moses' idea. It's not like he, he thinks, well, it would be nice to go back to Egypt and see what we can do for the people of Israel there. No, he is sent from God. This is a man on a mission, ready to go. Here he goes. It's great. He's answering the call of the Lord. So what we see in Moses now as I thought, similar to, to Ironworks. He's, just, he's ready for the work of God. He is laser-focused. 
Moses is ready. Everything is set. All things are right. And yet, there is something terribly wrong. Please stand with me as you can, and we will read from Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 19. I'm going to be reading from the King James Version, the New King James Version. You can follow along in your bulletin if you'd like. Again, Exodus chapter 4. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go, return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, quote, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Unquote. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please make yourself comfortable. For we have yet another passage that Pastor Darren asked me to preach on instead of him. Yet another passage uh, like this. I told you this is how it's going to play out. Okay, so here we are. Actually, you know, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm very happy, actually, to walk through this passage with you because it has a number of very important lessons for us as we serve God. If you want to serve God and your heart is to give to him, give of your lives to him, this is a very important passage for us to understand because of what is going on here. But it is baffling, right? What do we, you might read this passage and say, just what on earth, right? Well, look, here are two keys to understand the passage. Two keys, exegetical keys, that you need to understand to get, to get what's going on here, to get the meaning of the passage, first for them and then for us as well. So two things to understand. You get these two things, I think the passage opens up for us. Okay, key number one is to answer this question. Who is God seeking to kill on the road in verse 24? Okay, that's the real puzzling thing. Like God shows up and he says he sought to kill him. Who is it that God is seeking to kill on the road? Who is the him? Let me just ask you what you think. 
Anyone want to be brave? Raise their hand and tell me who they think that is. Yes, the woman in the back. That pretty woman in the back, her. Yeah, yeah. You. Moses himself. Now, you might think that, right? And, and the, uh, the pronouns are ambiguous there. Um, it actually just says him. But uh, in the NIV version, it actually says what, what Chrissy just says. They translate it. He sought to kill Moses um, because they're trying to make it make some sense for us. But it actually doesn't say that in the Hebrew. It says what it says here. He sought to kill him. Who's that him? Could there be anyone else? Yes, Mark. Well, it says him, so it can't be Zipporah. Okay, so you want to wake up a little more there in the back. Yeah, Josh. Moses firstborn. Notice there's another him in the story. And I think Josh is right. And you know, you can see that he's right by the context. Let's look at it here. You start in verse 22. Right? Notice in verse 22 starts talking about children. Israel, right, is God's firstborn son. You see that? That's why Pharaoh needs to let him go. Israel is, firstborn, is God's firstborn son. Okay, that's verse 22. Go to the next verse. Verse 23. I will kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. It's the second firstborn son. Right? Moses is commanded to tell Pharaoh this, that God will fight fiercely for his children, and he will. So you got verse 22, firstborn son, verse 23, firstborn son, then you get to verse 24. Who is about to be killed? Who's really in danger here? Again, now it's Moses' firstborn son, whose name is Gershom. The author is, uh, makes, takes careful uh, note he makes sure to tell us that this, about this firstborn son earlier in the narrative. His name is Gershom. And he's the guy, in verse 20, who's just loaded on a donkey. Now, if you have any doubt about that, this is really what we're talking about. We're talking about Moses' firstborn son. What cements the case is what happens immediately after. Zipporah circumcises this son, releasing the blood of the covenant of Abraham on him. And so God passes over him. See, what we have here, what we have here is a preview of the Passover event, right? What's going to happen when Moses gets to Egypt? It's all going to lead up to this event, this great event, a new covenant, and that's the Passover. And what happens in the Passover? You remember the story that the lambs are slain, the blood is put on the doorpost, and the angel of death passes over the firstborn, and they live. So this is actually a preview of that event. That's the first key, okay? First key is, who is who's in danger here. It's Moses' firstborn son. Second key to understanding the passage. This is very important. You've got to get this and hold on to it. And it's this. Zipporah is doing well. <laughs> okay? Just hold on to that. Zipporah is doing well. That's the second key. How do we know that? Well, because the son lives. <laughs> right? Pretty good clue. Again, the pronouns are ambiguous um, here, but it, it, he says he let him go. It says God let Gershom go after Zipporah 
does her um, kind of makeshift operation there in verse 26. So Zipporah is doing well. And we can also tell that because of how the narrative goes. Verse 27, Aaron shows up and greets his brother with a kiss. This is the, this is the, the kiss of the older brother. The blessing of the older brother symbolizes that God's blessing is upon him. In other words, things are right now. God is for Moses again. All's well that ends well. Right? Because of what Zipporah did. So whatever it was she was doing here, she was doing well. See that? Feel free to nod, you know. So. Okay, thank you. <laughs> if you don't see it, well, we have nuts and bolts afterwards. We can talk about it some more. Whatever it was she did, she did well. Ergo, Moses was not doing well. Okay, Moses wasn't doing well here because he should have been the one to do this. He should have been the one to take care of this with his son, and he didn't. He has been disobedient in administering the covenant of the chosen people, the covenant of Abraham, with his own children, to his own family. Now, what happens in verse 25, again, pronouns ambiguous here. She takes the foreskin that she has cut, Zipporah, and she touches it, or in this translation, casts it to his feet. Actually says his feet. Again, could be Gershom, could be Moses. I think uh, this trans most translations uh, just supply Moses here again, that he, she touches it to Moses' feet. It actually could be either one. She could take a foreskin and she could have cast it to to Gershom's, could have touched Gershom's feet or Moses' feet. If she was doing it to Gershom, then it's, you know, this is what she is doing. She is releasing the blood of the covenant of Abraham on this son, on this firstborn son, to protect him, to save him, really. That's if she's doing it with Gershom. She's putting the blood of the covenant on her child this, this, for this Passover. But if it's Moses... And I think it probably is. Right? She probably touches Moses' feet with it. You see what she's doing is she is identifying her action with Moses. She's doing it. She's saying, this I'm doing as your representative. It's sort of like, you know, when you publish an academic paper, you know, the graduate student is probably the one who does all the work. Um, but what, what goes on, the first, the first uh, name on the paper is going to be the professor's name. Right? Because even though, the, even though the graduate student has done all the work, the professor's name goes on the top because what, the, what uh, the author is saying is, I identify, I'm doing this under the auspices of this professor. So her name goes on the top, right? Or, you know, uh, we're just coming up to the Olympics, right? So when, when the Olympics, you know, the athlete runs the race and then he waves to the president of the country. Right? What's he saying? He's saying, well, I actually ran the race, but I did it in your place. I did it in kind of in the place of the country. I, I stand for the country. Right? That's, what, that's what she's doing now. She's throwing it at his feet. What she's saying is, I did this in your place. Which further underscores for us, does it not, that it really should have been Moses who did it. It was Moses. She did it for Moses. She did it in the place of Moses. So things turned out all right, but it should have been Moses who did it. She did it in his place. 
Moses should have been the one to get his hands bloody for his family, and he didn't. Okay, so that's the passage. Those are the two keys. You got those. Passages can start to make some sense for it, sense for us, don't you think? And if they were reading well here, then there are two lessons that I think are very, very much there for us to draw from this passage. There are two important things. If you want to start ministering, if you want to go in the power of God, there are two things that are important for you to know. Two, what I'm calling them here is family lessons about ministry. Two family lessons about ministry. Very important. And the first one is this. This is Moses' first lesson in serving God. As he's going, ready to go, you ready to go serve God? First lesson. This is the first lesson in serving God. Number one, the Lord's call always includes a call to your family first. The Lord's call always includes a call to your family first. So even though, this is his first lesson, even though Moses is sent on this mission and God is telling him to do this, the Lord is very serious about taking care of his family first, his spiritual care of his family first. And he feels the same way for us. Even though he calls you to do something, he is very serious about you first understanding your call to minister to your family, minister in your private life first. Now, I actually very much appreciate being assigned this passage. Thank you. Because it actually brought up for me a lot of things to think about that I hadn't thought about in a while. And I'm kind of taken back here to when I was first converted to Christianity. And um, it's, it's kind of a happy day for me yesterday because it was actually yesterday, 40 years ago, that I turned to Christ. Thank you. Man. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. You've redeemed yourself back there. <laughs> Amen. Touche. Touche. He said, Jesus redeemed me. Very good. Well, Jesus also redeemed me, and it was my anniversary yesterday. It was back in high school at the time. And many of you can identify this with this. When I, when I first grasped the message of grace, when I first understood what Jesus had done for me, and I was on fire. And, and many of you who haven't been maybe raised in a church can identify with this. When you first get that message, I mean, you're unstoppable. And that's, that's the way I was in high school. You would know this. If you were a friend of mine in high school, you knew. And I was coming, down your, I was coming your way. You were going to hear about it. You were going to hear about Jesus. Because I was just on fire. And I was so taken with this message. And I had ringing in my ears... This, this, this call from the gospel, to preach the gospel. Go and preach the gospel. Isn't that what Jesus, the last thing he told his disciples, go and preach the gospel. That was me. And I was baffled because I was saying this, I was, I was trying to tell my family this, and nobody in my family seemed, was seeming to get it. I couldn't understand this. My sisters and my parents, I was telling them, and they just, they weren't getting it. In fact, they were getting worried about me. It's like, what kind of cult has he gotten involved in? You know, they were very worried. I was baffled. I was like, don't you see what he's done for us? Don't you see how great it is? And so I developed a plan, and uh, I was very serious about this. I decided, I picked a certain day. I was going to drop out of high school, 
I was going to pack a backpack. I was going to take a backpack and my guitar. And I was going to hitchhike down the Garden State Parkway. And I was going to preach the gospel. Wherever I ended up, whoever I came to, I was going to preach the gospel. That was my plan. Now, this might seem ridiculous to you. <laughs> this might seem like a ridiculous plan to you, but I want you to know I was very serious about it. That was what I was going to do. I mean, what else, what, what's life about? <laughs> right? So this was my plan. Like, who needs high school? Who needs college? That kind of stuff, you know? Going to go preach the gospel. So I was all ready. I had my backpack packed. I had my guitar ready. And I was ready to go. And I left a note. There was no one home at the time in my house. So I left a note. I was like, here's what's going on. You know, I'll be in touch. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? What I have to do, I have to, I have to at least call a few friends and let them know that I'm leaving, you know? It's kind of, it's kind of out of the blue. So I, I called up all these friends. and Turns out none of them were home. There were no friends that were home at the time. So I didn't get to anybody. And so I was about to leave. Um, this really did happen. I know you're shaking your head. It really did happen. <laughs> I was about to leave, and I thought, you know, I have got to at least call Carl Krasinski. Carl Krasinski was a friend of mine, and he was kind of instrumental in my coming to faith. So I thought, you know, I at least got to call Carl. So I called up Carl Krasinski, and sure enough, Carl Krasinski was not home. However, his mother, Teresa, was home, and she picked up the phone. Now, to understand this, I have to explain, I guess, that in those days, a whole family had one phone. I, I know, it's hard to understand, right? It's hard to imagine. But they actually had one phone line for the whole family. And so, you know, you might call someone, and, and her, his mother might pick up the phone. I know, it's incredible, right? How could that be? How could we live that way? And yet, somehow, we managed. So Carl wasn't home, but Therese, I think her name was Teresa. To me, she was Mrs. Krasinski. Mrs. Krasinski picked up the line. I don't, I don't think she realized how fateful a day that was. <laughs> she picked up the phone line, and I explained to her. I said, I just want to leave a message for Carl. Say goodbye to you guys. Uh, thank you. You know, I'm leaving. I explained the whole thing to her. And then there was silence at the, at the end of the line. And after the silence, I heard, Sam, this is not God's will for you. I said, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm called, you know, God says, go and preach the gospel. I'm going to preach the gospel, blah, 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 blah. And then she said, Sam, this is not God's will for you. And little by little, she began to explain to me the first lesson of ministry. And that is to love your family first. God's first call is to love your family. Now, you might say in a situation like that, I get it. But, you know, aren't there, don't you realize that sometimes God's work calls us away? Sometimes we've got to leave our family. We've got we to go and do God's work. Shouldn't, isn't God's work more important? And God's answer is no. It's not because there's a, you know, God's work versus your family. It's because God's work includes your family, first of all. It is your first line of discipleship. You are called to make disciples. Yes, you are called to go and, and preach the gospel and to make disciples, but your first line of discipleship is the people in your own household. That's the lesson that I needed to learn. And so when we take it forward, you know, 
if you think about Moses and, and what he had to do, he was going to lead the people of God, all of the people of God. He was going to lead Pharaoh in the way that God was saying to go. He was going to lead all of Egypt, one of the greatest nations of the world at that time. He was going to lead. He was going to be the leader of all of this. But God said, first, you have got to lead your family. This is where it begins. It begins in your home. So if you want to take that forward to today, friends, for us, it means a few things. First of all, for Ironworks Church, you know, I see some of you serving in great capacity here, doing a lot, a lot for this church. And I see you serving. You know, we just went through the new members class, and, you know, what did we hear in the new members class? He said, you know, pastor said, if you're going to be a member of this church, you should be doing something in this church. There should be some, some way you're serving, some area of service in your church, which is true. And there is great need here for the things that are going on. There's great need for, for everybody to be serving. But I will tell you this, and I'm going to speak here, um, since I have a microphone, I'm going to speak in, in, on behalf of your pastor. I'm going to, I'm going to say this to him because I, I know he believes this. And I actually would say it anyway, even if he didn't believe it. Do not, do not give more time to Ironworks Church if your family needs attention at home. Do not give him, do not give this church more time if your family needs more attention. That's something that he does not want to build this way. And so long as I'm around, I won't let him. But he doesn't. Because God is very serious about this. He's very serious about this. This is your first line of discipleship. Or, as the Apostle Paul put it in your reflection, if a man cannot manage his own household, how can he care for God's, God's church? Right? Or, as, as Paul would say to Moses, I think, I mean, just let's say the Apostle Paul was taken on the exodus with Moses. <laughs> what would he say to Moses? He would say to Moses, Moses, how can you lead God's people in the Passover, if you haven't even put the first Jewish sign of the covenant on your own son. It is very serious to God. Very serious. Especially if we're talking about leadership of God's people. So that's lesson number one here. That's why the consequences were so serious for Moses and his son here. Because God takes it very seriously. And, you know, let me, let me just, I, th I feel like we should push a little bit further here um, and, and helping you to apply this. I really do want you to take this home to your heart in your lives because um, most of us, for most of us, though, it's not service in the church. That's one aspect of our lives. But for most of us, our primary calling is in the workplace. Because that's where we spend most of our time, uh, in the workplace, in our business. And, you know, that's where, this theme, that's where this slides. That's where priorities seem to slide around in our lives. You know, I, I'm thinking about this when I first started um, 
my principal work, when I first became a pastor, we were living in Maryland at the time, and um, I got a pastor in New York City in Greenwich Village, and it was really hard to get a, an apartment in Greenwich Village in New York City because it had kind of become affluent. And I was pretty insistent. If the church is in this certain area of New York City called Greenwich Village, if the church is in the village, then we need to live in the village. So I was very much about we need to get an apartment in the village. The previous two pastors had not gotten homes in the village, and I thought that was a mistake. I said, we got to get an apartment in the village. Well, that made it really hard. So uh, the work started, we didn't have a place to live, and so I actually uh, moved up and lived separately from the family for a while um, while we were trying to find an apartment. And uh, that's, you know, you try to work things out the best you can, but uh, I was apart from the family there, and at the time, you know, kids were young, which is sort of a key time in a family's life, actually. If you notice here uh, with Moses, it seems like his kids are very small during the Exodus. Um, the reason I say that is because he seems to fit them all on one donkey. If you look at verse 20, he puts them all on one donkey, his whole family. So I think the kids are small here. And this is similar... Um, to the situation that, that I was in. So I had to live apart from the family. We were trying to work it out, trying to make the best decision. And then, after we finally got a place, they moved up, and we had just finished unpacking. We'd been there in the apartment a few weeks. We had just finished unpacking the last box, and that night, the apartment building caught on fire and uh, started to burn. It was the coldest night in the year. We were in, next thing we we got out of the apartment, but we were standing there in blankets. You know, I had a kid on my shoulders, and uh, we were watching this apartment along with the rest of Greenwich Village. We were watching this apartment building burn, and then suddenly we didn't have a place anymore to live. She went back to Maryland. She was in Bethany uh, for a while, and I thought we had it set up well because every other week, every other week, I was able to get down during the week, spend some time with the family. But I'll tell you what started to happen. Our family started to fray. And some serious things happened with the kids. And now I have to look back at that and I have to wonder, was that the best decision? Did, I, did we work it out in the right way? You got to wonder. Because what we learned, I was just talking with Matt beforehand, what we learned is my physical presence in the home made a big difference. So, you know, you have to work out some situations. I know some of you have different things where you travel, and, and, and it's difficult, but... Um, very often the case, we slip into this because the workplace might be easier than the home place. You go to work, and what happens? You're appreciated, <laughs> especially if you're doing a good job in your, in your job. You, you know, like people praise you. What happens when you get home? You know, it's like, uh, <laughs> do you feel really appreciated? Are you being appreciated? You don't know. Sometimes it's just easier in the workplace. And when that happens, then the priorities start to slip. And you forget this first lesson that God, uh, of serving God. And so you have to be careful. God wants you to do all you can for your family. There are times when you have to set, set up different situations for work. But he wants you to do all that you can for your family first. And so this is why this is Moses' first rule of ministry. It starts in private. It starts with attention to the home your first place of leadership. It's your first line of discipleship.
So that's the first lesson, family lesson, okay? It's the second family lesson here. And um, I think it's pretty apparent from the passage. The second lesson is this. There are times when a wife needs to disobey her husband. Okay, so why didn't Moses circumcise his child? I mean, he knew it. He should. He was Jewish. He knew he was Jewish. You know, sometimes you watch these movies, these great movies like The Ten Commandments. Great, great movie. But you get the impression from some of these flicks that Moses didn't really know he was Jewish until later in his life. You know, it was like somehow he... One day he finds out, oh, what do you know, I'm Jewish. It wasn't like that. He knew from the start his heritage. He knew he was an Israelite. You can tell by the way it's written, because at one point he goes out to see his people, his brothers, see how they were doing. He knew he was, he was an Israelite, even though he found himself being raised in Pharaoh's household. So he had all the resources of, of Egypt at his disposal to know about Israel. He had his Jewish heritage. He knew that he was under the covenant of Abraham. He knew that this was important to be done. Now, so, so commentators speculate here, and they say, why didn't, why didn't he do it? And they speculate, and they say, well, maybe it was because of his father-in-law, Jethro. He didn't want to offend him, or something was the poor. I don't see it, folks. I don't see that. Because Jethro was the priest of Midianite of the Midianites. Midian was a, was a son of Abraham, and Abraham circumcised all of his sons. So I don't see that. I don't. We don't know why he didn't do it. Whatever the reason, he didn't. And Zipporah acted in contradiction to her husband here, and she was right to do so. She saves a life. Now, you know, whenever we come to some of these stories in the Bible, I always want to point that out because, it's, because we teach here the principle that as a wife, you are called to promote your husband to authority. We teach that here. It's a principle of the scriptures. That as, as, a, as a woman, when you enter into marriage as a wife, you are called <clears throat> to put your husband forward in authority for him to be in charge. <clears throat> And that's taught in the scriptures. That's evident from the, from the scriptures as well as um, social science. So <clears throat> when you do that, it's important to, to be consistent as a policy, to take that on as a policy. However, that's not the only principle in scripture. Because what we also find in scripture is that a husband has limits to his authority, as any human authority does. There are limits to that. And there are times when you need to disobey him. And that's why both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, the authors are careful to give us stories when that actually is the case. And one of those places is right here, where she has to act in in contradiction to um, to her husband, and she's right to do it. So she acts without Moses' consent. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you, Christy. 
And she's righteous to do so. So when do you do that? When is it appropriate for this to happen, for a wife to act out? Well, I think we can tell from the passage, right? It's when the husband is so out to lunch spiritually that she's, he is leading you to do something wrong. She has a scriptural basis here. I could put it this way. So this is not about, oh, you know, I want to buy the red car and he wants to buy the white car. It's not that kind of situation at all. It's where he has so relinquished his spiritual leadership that they are being led into, a, into a doing wrong. And she says no. You know, when, uh, when we were down and uh, our family was separated the second time, and uh, they were living down in Bethany, and things were starting to fray, uh, my wife took the reins. And I thought things were doing okay, but as I recall, you know, she reached a point where she was like, things are not okay now. And so it's a similar situation that she stepped up and said, we are going to get, I don't care what it takes, we're going to get an apartment. And she was, uh, she was submitting in the sense that she was looked in Greenwich Village only. So I was saying it had to be in Greenwich Village. And she was, she was trying to do that. And you know what? She picked up and she came up to New York and she was said, I am going to find an apartment. And the Lord was with her. And so she went around. We got rejected so many times because we had kids. You know, that's, that's what made it difficult. I had a, actually a previous landlord. He actually looked at me and said, I regret having rented to you. So talk, talk about not feeling welcome in the city, right? He's like, I regret having uh, rented to you because you have kids. And that means you're home during the day and there's more wear on the apartment. It's like, you know, come on. But that's what we were dealing with there. That, I want you to see how difficult this was. And yet my wife said, I'm, I'm going to get this done. So she took the reins. She got it done. Right before she had to leave again, the last place we looked at, it ended up being on the very corner of Greenwich Village, the very corner. She found a place. And it turned out we, got, we ended up getting assistance. We ended up being able to buy that place. I'll tell you, it was the best financial decision we ever made in our lives. And it was because she stepped up. So it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't as serious as what Moses and Zipporah went through, but um, that's because I'm not as important as Moses. I got off easier. But uh, take note, wives, you know, submission is an active process. It's a process that involves both of you needing to be actively seeking out the will of God. For this scale. Okay, for your family. So two, those two lessons for us are very important. But finally, friends, why is this so important? What's so important here that Moses' lack of action would endanger his son's life? And that Zipporah's act of disobeying her husband would save that life. What was so important about this? And I think the answer is, is given to us in verse 26. In, Moses, in not Moses' words, Zipporah's words. She says, you, my husband, are a bridegroom of blood. Now, a lot of people read that as if she's angry. You're a bridegroom of blood to her. I don't think she's angry. I think she's prophesying. I think she is exhorting her husband. She's saying this. She's saying, Moses, you're my husband. You're my bridegroom. And yet, you are going to be the mediator of a new covenant. 
That's who you are. That's who you need to be. So you have got to be involved with the blood. Remember, this is, a, this is a preview of the Passover event. The Passover lambs are going to be cut off so that the firstborn Israelites will live. And Moses is going to be the one to institute this. Moses is going to be the one to lead in this, to, to command this. He's going to administrate this whole new covenant that will be upon the earth. And he will have his own whole new sign dealing with blood. Because it's always about blood. Friends, each new covenant that God makes on the earth and each new covenant sign that he gives, it always has to do with the shedding of blood. And Zipporah, righteous woman that she was, she understood that. And she recognized it. There are many firstborn sons in this passage. There's Pharaoh's firstborn. There's Moses' firstborn. There's God's firstborn, Israel. But, you know, son of God was a title shared with Israel by yet another. And Hosea makes the prophecy in Hosea 11. He says, when you were young, God speaking to Israel, I loved Israel. I loved Israel as a son. And I have called my son out of Egypt. Now, when he was speaking that prophecy, Hosea was talking about Israel in the Exodus. But it was later filled up with an even greater meaning when another son, firstborn of Israel, was exiled into Egypt because of a ruler. And then God called him out of Egypt to return to Nazareth to grow up as, as a boy. And his name was Jesus Christ. And this firstborn son, unlike Gershom and unlike Israel, was cut off. In his firstborn son's life, the mother did not step in and save the day. But he grew up and he gave us the final covenant sign. He was cut off so that we would live. So that your family could live. And this firstborn, was vol he volunteered to be cut off. He went to the cross. He gave us the final covenant sign. And he did it in absolute righteousness. So when he was there on the cross, even in the cross, he was performing the most important ministry in the history of the world, the most difficult ministry in the history of the world, suffering under physical torture, and also bearing our very sins on his shoulders. In the midst of that, he is taking care of his own family, his own household. He's looking down and from the cross making sure his mother is taken care of. You can read about it in John 19. That, friends, is righteousness. <laughs> Talk about first <laughs> lesson of ministry. That is Jesus showing us righteousness. And because of that righteous shedding of the firstborn's blood, God will fiercely fight for his children now. He will fiercely fight for your family. So yeah, there are lessons here for us to learn about a family and ministry, but here, don't miss the most important one. The tragedy of the firstborn shedding his blood gives your family life. Amen?
Amen. Let us celebrate that now by coming to the table. Please stand.